I have never personally witnessed an autopsy. Perhaps someone here this morning may have, but I doubt that most of us ever will. I've read an autopsy report, but thankfully I've never observed an actual autopsy. Those in the medical profession have told me that it's not the kind of thing that the average person ought to witness. It's a procedure that could appear to be brutal, and to most people it's certainly distasteful. Autopsy. The Greek word literally means seeing with one's own eyes. Of course, it's come to mean the examination of a dead body for the sake of determining the cause of death. Now, according to historians, the first known autopsy was performed in 1315 A.D. With the birth of the Renaissance and the renewal of interest in the human anatomy, autopsies became quite common. Do you know that Leonardo da Vinci performed over 30 autopsies in his life? Following him, Michelangelo did the same. However, this past week in my study, I've discovered that the historians are wrong. The first autopsy was not performed in 1315 A.D. after all. And these men of the Renaissance were not the first to examine a body to determine the cause of death. On the contrary, the first autopsy was performed by Jesus. It was a rather unique autopsy in that it was not performed on one person, but on many people at the same time. And it was not performed on the dead, but on the living or more accurately, those who thought they were alive. Of course, I'm talking about Jesus' letter here, His post-mortem account to the church in Sardis. One commentator that I read this past week calls Sardis a morgue with a steeple. And refers to the first six verses of Revelation 3 as the coroner's report based upon what Jesus has to say to this lifeless, complacent group of believers. You've got mail. We're in the midst of a series, Letters to the Church, that's taking us through the first three chapters of Revelation and Jesus' letters to these seven churches in Asia Minor. This morning our study brings us then to this fifth church, the church in the city of Sardis. Let's begin our study of Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6, by looking at the Scripture together. Now, before we work our way through these six verses, let's pause and let's ask God to speak clearly to us through His Word. Would you pray with me? We approach Your Word, Heavenly Father, with a sense of awe, reverence and with a sense of anticipation and expectation. And so we pray that You would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear, our minds that we might understand, and most of all, our hearts, that we might receive the truth and plant it there, that it might grow in us and be fruitful in the way that You desire it to be. Teach us this morning. From this letter, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So follow along in your Bible as I read again Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Once again, as with all of Jesus' letters to these churches, this letter readily divides itself into six distinct segments, beginning with the church. In the first part of verse 1, we read, To the angel, that is the messenger, I believe it's addressed to the pastor, of the church in Sardis. Right. Perhaps a little background on this city of Sardis will help us to understand the church in Sardis a little better. Basically, we can sum up the city of Sardis with four M's. The first M word is the word mountain. Mountain. Sardis was built atop a 1,500 foot high mountain. And with the exception of one very narrow neck of land to the south, the walls of the city dropped off sheer perpendicular cliffs to the valley below. In other words, the only access into and out of the city was by that narrow trail. And thus Sardis was easily defended. And the citizens of Sardis boasted that they were totally safe and secure from any outside attack. Mountain. The second M word is the word money. As we already heard on the video, as historians can tell, Sardis was the very first place in the world to actually mint coins. The hills, valleys, and rivers surrounding the city were rich in gold and silver. And coins were minted here and were used throughout the Roman Empire in exchange for goods. A sister to that M is the word materialism. (laughs) Because of its wealth of gold and silver, and because it lay at the intersection of five major trade routes throughout Asia Minor, the people of Sardis became very, very very rich and materialistic. Living in luxury, these people tended to be arrogant, pleasure-seeking, lazy, and selfish. Materialism. The final M is the word misfortune. In spite of their mountain money and materialism, the people of Sardis knew all about tragedy. Twice within the space of about 300 years, this supposedly impregnable city was overthrown by enemies. And then in 17 AD, Sardis suffered a devastating earthquake. 
And even though Rome came to its aid by remitting taxes for five years and giving the people nearly $2 million to rebuild, the city never fully recovered from that tragedy. It kept declining in power and influence. So by the time that Jesus wrote this letter to the church at the end of the first century, Sardis had actually been given the nickname the City of Death. Mountain, money, materialism, misfortune. In this lifeless city, we find a group of lifeless believers. And to the sleeping church, Jesus issues a wake-up call. Which brings us then to the Christ. In the middle part of verse 1, Jesus presents Himself to this church with these credentials. These are the words of Him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The picture here of Christ is one of ultimate authority. In His hand, if you will, under His control, are two things. First, the seven spirits. Or better translated, I believe, the sevenfold spirit. Now, we first saw a glimpse of the sevenfold spirit of God back in Revelation 1 and verse 4. No doubt this is a reference to the third member of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. Throughout the Bible, especially here in Revelation, the number seven has a reference to completeness or perfection. And thus the Holy Spirit who gives life and breath to the church is in Jesus' hand. He not only holds the sevenfold Spirit, He also holds the seven stars. Which Revelation 1 and verse 20 tells us, by the way, are the angels, the messengers, as I've already explained to you, I believe it's the pastors of these seven churches. And so here's the complete picture. The Holy Spirit who gives us the breath of life and the pastors who share the word of life are in Jesus' hand. They are under His authority. And if this lifeless church is ever to spring to life again, it will only be as Jesus allows the Spirit of life and the word of life to resurrect it. Hang on to that thought. We'll come back to it in a bit. So then, what does Christ specifically say to these believers in Sardis? By the way, I want you to notice there's a slight change in your outline today. Jesus usually begins with a word of commendation and then follows with a word of confrontation, but not so with Sardis. There's so little to commend and so much to confront that Christ gets right down to the business of what's wrong with this church first. So let's look at the confrontation together. Look again at the end of verse 1 and the end of verse 2. I know your deeds... You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Jesus tells these Christians, I know your deeds. I'm intimately acquainted. As I'm walking among the lampstands, I have inspected your works, your ministry, your service, 
And he confronts them, notice, on two accounts. First of all, that their deeds were inanimate. Their deeds were inanimate. You have a reputation, he says, of being alive, but you are dead. Their words, their deeds were inanimate, lifeless, empty, dead. Notice again that they had a reputation of being alive. In their own eyes and in the eyes of others, this church was doing well. But in the eyes of the Lord, this church in fact was dead. And the difference in perspective is this. You see, people look on the outside and measure activity. God looks on the inside and measures spirituality. And on the outside, these believers in Sardis appeared to be alive. I mean, the church had its building, its schedule of services, its events, its customs and traditions, its rituals and ceremony. It's even possible that this church was a, was a beehive of activity 24-7, so much so that people commented, now there's a church that's really alive. <laughs> but on the inside, Jesus knew that these Christians were really dead. The church was nothing but an empty carcass. As Jesus confronted the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, remember that where He said, you are nothing but whitewashed tombs. <laughs> you see, the breath of life, the Holy Spirit had been quenched. Spiritual vitality was lacking. All of their ministry, all of their activity was nothing but hollow busyness. <laughs> Their deeds were inanimate. And Jesus confronts them about it. He also confronts them because their deeds were incomplete. Their deeds were incomplete. Jesus writes, I haven't found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. The word in the Greek here, complete, is a word that could be translated finished, perfected, matured. In other words, these believers in Sardis were good starters, but they were very poor finishers. At one time, this church was alive, but they had since died. They didn't persevere. They didn't complete the task at hand. They didn't finish the race. Their deeds were incomplete. And Jesus confronts them about it. And so Jesus confronts this church because their deeds are inanimate, there's no life in them, and they are incomplete. They remain unfinished, which brings us then to there is a commendation. Fortunately, there is a glimmer of hope in this otherwise hopeless church. There's a faint pulse that can be detected in this body of believers. There's a little bit of shallow breathing and brain activity on the life support monitor. Because, you see, there was a remnant. A very small nucleus who had remained faithful. And Jesus commends them ever so briefly in verse 4. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. Interesting, that word soiled there. It's exactly the word that's used to describe what happens when someone dies and they soil their clothes. Yet you have a few people, Jesus says. Literally, in the Greek, it's a few names. 
In other words, I want us to get the picture here that Jesus knew these faithful people by name. And He commends them for having some life in an otherwise lifeless church. Which then brings us to the council. Jesus' counsel to this sleeping, complacent, comatose church is found at the beginning of verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3. In fact, let's read this out loud together. Would you read this with me? Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Remember therefore what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. Yeah. Five verbs. Did you catch them? Five words of counsel. Wake up! Strengthen, remember, obey, and repent. Interesting to me that in the Greek, the first four of these verbs are continuing action verbs. In other words, literally, keep on waking up. Keep on strengthening. Keep on remembering. Keep on obeying. The last verb is an imperative command. Repent and do it now. (laughs) So how do you breathe life into a lifeless church? Well, you follow these five steps. First, wake up. Now these Christians in Sardis knew that the main reason their city had been overthrown by enemies was the direct result of sleeping soldiers. Both times this supposedly impregnable city was conquered, it was because some overconfident sentries fell asleep at their posts. And so Jesus warns the church to wake up, to keep on watch, to be on the alert. Don't fall asleep at your post. And then He tells them to strengthen. Now again, these believers knew exactly what that meant. Following the earthquake that destroyed their city, they had to strengthen. They had to reinforce what remained so that the city could be rebuilt. We call it retrofitting. And then he tells them to remember. A reminder from Jesus, you see, to get back to the basics, to not neglect the fundamentals, to return to those foundational truths they had initially received and embraced when they first became Christ followers. Get back to the roots. Don't lose your moorings, is what he's saying. Remember. And then he tells them to obey. Literally, keep on obeying. Simply put, it's not what you know, it's what you are doing with what you know. Did you hear me? It's not what you know, it's what you're doing with what you know. We don't need more information, we need transformation. Obey. And then Jesus says, repent. As with most of the letters Jesus wrote to these seven churches, He calls the church in Sardis to have a change of heart and direction, to stop doing what's wrong and to start doing what is right. It's a military term actually. It means about face. And it's a command from our commander-in-chief. Repent. The only way to arrest this sleeping sickness is to act upon Jesus' counsel. Wake up, strengthen, remember, obey, and repent. All of which leads us then to the consequences. 
As always, the consequences depend upon the choice to disobey or to obey Jesus' counsel. Now, if the choice is to disobey, the consequences are found at the end of verse 3. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. See, these Christians, again, remember, they knew all too well about surprises. Surprise attacks, surprise earthquakes. And Jesus warns them that if they do not heed His counsel, He's got a little surprise for them Himself. (laughs) Like a thief, He will come with swift judgment upon them. However, if the choice is to obey Jesus' counsel, the consequences are found in verse 5. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out His name from the book of life, but will acknowledge His name before My Father and His angels. Three promises here. First of all, I see here a promise of purity. Dressed in white... Also mentioned at the end of verse 4, they will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. Now in the first century, white garments were symbolic of purity, as is supposed to be a white wedding garment today. Therefore, the picture here is that one who obeys Jesus' counsel will be clothed in purity in the righteousness and the holiness of Christ Himself. By the way, that's to be contrasted, you understand that, with the soiled clothes of those who are unfaithful. Purity. Secondly, I see here a promise of security. Security. I will never blot out His name from the book of life. Isn't that a wonderful word of security? Literally, by the way, the Greek reads here, I wish they just translated it this way, I will never, no, never blot out His name from the book of life. Isn't that great? The overcomer's name's forever secure in the book of life. And then finally, I see here a promise of identity. But I will acknowledge His name before my Father and His angels. Someday... Each and every faithful Christian will stand before God and will hear Jesus say, He or she belongs to me. He or she is mine. We don't stand before God on our own. We stand before God because we are identified with Jesus Christ. Wow, what a promise that is. But let's look at the Scripture. Now, what lessons can we learn from our study together this morning? As it says in verse 6, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what is the Holy Spirit saying to us today? How is this letter to the church in Sardis relevant to the church in Springville? Well, let me draw three simple thoughts from Jesus' letter to this dying church. Three practical applications about dying churches. First of all, let me talk to you for just a moment about the curse of a dying church. The curse of a dying church. I must come back to that phrase at the end of verse 1 yet again. In fact, let's read it out loud together. Would you read this with me? You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Hmm. And herein, by the way, lies the curse 
of a dying church. Those who are dying are usually the last ones to know it. Hear me on this. Those in a sleepy, lifeless church think they are alive. They think they're doing just fine. Even outsiders think that they are doing well. They have the reputation of being a healthy church, but truthfully they are dying or in fact are already dead. Doesn't happen overnight. It's a gradual, slow process that often takes years. The church is lulled to sleep, becomes comatose, finally dies. And the ones who are the most surprised are the church members who thought that everything was just fine. In fact, they'll simply ignore the autopsy report and they'll just prop up the corpse deceiving themselves into thinking that they are still alive because after all, they're still holding worship services. They're still filling their church calendar with one activity after another after another. Friends, we need to be ever so careful here. I mean, what could be worse than to think you're alive when in fact you are dead? And I am afraid, may I be just candid? I am afraid that there are more churches like Sardis today than we would like to admit. Dead people are preaching in their pulpits. Dead people are teaching their Bible study groups. Dead people are attending their Sunday services. Dead people are serving in their ministry. There are dead people everywhere and they don't even know it. And let's not think for one moment that that couldn't happen to Springville Church of the Nazarene. The minute we believe that, the minute we smugly boast of our security, the minute that we're lulled to sleep at our post, watch out. The minute we become comfortable, we are in fact in danger. By the way, did you know that 70, on average, 77 churches in the United States close their doors every week. Did you know that? Is that astounding to you? Does that bother you? That bothers me like crazy. 77 churches every week in our country close their doors for good. And you know who's the most surprised? the people who attended those churches. They didn't even know they were dead. To quote somebody, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Which brings us then to the cause of a dying church. What causes a church that was once alive to be lulled to sleep? How can a group of living believers become a group of dying believers? Why do churches die? I think that's a good question. Well, from today's text, as well as my own personal observations from 44 years of pastoral experience, let me suggest five causes of death. Five things that kill a church. You will find these five things on the autopsy report more often than not. 
beginning with rejection of the Spirit. Rejection of the Spirit. I list this first because I believe it is first. Quenching the life-giving Holy Spirit. When the breath of life, the Spirit of God, Ichabod is pronounced over a church, that church has died. Now they may continue to do things. (laughs) They may continue to meet. They may continue to go through the motions, but they are in fact dead because there is no breath of life in them. If we quench the Holy Spirit, we die. I think about uh, Moses when he was leading the Israelites to the Promised Land. After they'd spent all that time there at the at Mount Sinai, I remember, and they got the Ten Commandments twice <laughs> because they you know, messed up the first time and Moses dropped the tab. Remember, you know, you know the whole story. Well, finally God says, okay, it's time to move on. Now, you remember in the Old Testament how God led the people? The Shekinah glory, God, remember that story? The Shekinah glory of God, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night would lead them. When the, when the Shekinah glory would move, then the people would move. If the Shekinah glory stood still, the people made camp and they stood still. They didn't go anywhere without God's presence. Well, God now tells Moses, okay, it's time for you to move on from Sinai. You've gotten kind of comfortable here. It's time to move on to where you need to go, and that's the promised land. And I love what Moses says to God. If your presence does not go up with us, do not send us up from here. You see what he's saying? He's telling God, you're sending us out. I understand that. But if you don't go with us, if your presence, if your Shekinah glory does not move with us, we're not going anywhere. (laughs) Why would we want to go anywhere without you? And then notice he goes on and says, how will anyone know that you are pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? That's a great question. And then he goes on and says, what else will distinguish me and your people from all the people on the face of the earth. Did you get that? That is a verse for us today. (laughs) Because you see, if we we move without God's presence among us, if we are not a Spirit-filled church, if we are not Spirit-filled individuals, and we go through the motions and we play church and we, we do all the things that churches are supposed to do, all we are is a carcass. All we are is a whitewashed tomb. All we are is something that is empty. And we are no different than any other man-made organization on the face of this earth. And our cry would be, Oh God, if Your presence doesn't go with us, we're not going to go anywhere. How else will we be distinguished among all of the clubs and the organizations on the face of this earth unless we are Spirit-filled, unless Your presence is among us. That's why we sang those songs earlier. Holy Spirit, rain down. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh 
on me. Because I think the number one thing that kills churches is a rejection of the Spirit. There's four more. Let me just give them to you real quickly. The second one is reverence for the old. (laughs) Reverence for the old. Living on past laurels. Clinging to encrusted traditions. You see, when our opinion, when man-made opinion becomes more important than God's truth, we are in trouble. And there are more churches, mind you, that split over man-made opinions than ever split over God's Word. (laughs) Got to be so careful that we don't so fall in love with our past (laughs) that we can't even live in the present or the future. The sister to that, number three, is resistance to the new. When we become rigid, when we become inflexible, when we are unwilling to change, when the watchwords of the church become, we've never done it that way before. <laughs> or what's that crazy pastor think he's doing? We've always done it this way. Watch out. You understand the message never changes. But the method must change. The fourth, really important, reversion in the members. Sin in the camp. Back to that word in the text here about the garments being soiled. If we have soiled garments among us, if there is a need to repent, if there's any unconfessed sin in our midst, either individually or congregationally, it'll kill us. If we think we can do this work to which God has called us to do and do it in the flesh and do it without being right with God, if we have lost our sense of abhorring sin, detesting sin. If we don't hate sin the way God hates sin, we're in trouble. And then finally, this one's big, is relaxation on the mission. When we have a lack of vision, when we've lost our clear sense of purpose, when there is no zeal or passion for the lost... When we think church is all about us coming together on Sunday morning in our holy huddle and walking arms and singing kumbaya, patting each other on the back and going home and thinking, wow, wasn't that cool? That was really good to see everybody. And we think that's what church is all about. We are so mistaken. Yeah, we need to come together. We need to worship God. He's the audience of one. And we need to do that corporately. We need to study His Word. Why? So that we can be sent out. The church is not inside these walls. You understand that? The church is out there. The church was always meant to be out there. We're to be light to the darkness. We are to be salt in this world that we live in. And if we have lost our sense of the lostness of people, we are in trouble. If you don't see that friend of yours who is lost as damned to eternal hell, you have lost your vision of our purpose. If you don't look at that family member, that person you work, that neighbor, that schoolmate, if you don't see them for their lostness, if you don't have the same heart for them that God has for lost people, if that's us, 
we're dying. Rejection of the Spirit, reverence for the old, resistance to the new, reversion in the members, relaxation on the mission. These are common causes of death listed on a church's autopsy report. And I'm sure there's other factors that contribute to a church's demise, but those five certainly merit our careful thought, do they not? Which brings us into the cure for a dying church. And simply put, the cure for a dying church, the cure for a sleeping comatose believer is exactly what Jesus prescribed for the church in Sardis. Wake up, strengthen, remember, obey, and repent. Wake up, strengthen, remember, obey, and repent. I really can't add anything to that. (laughs) Jesus' word to us is wake up, strengthen, remember, obey, and repent. That just says it all right there. got mail. Letters to the church. This morning we've taken a closer look at Revelation 3 verses 1 through 6. Jesus' letter to the church in Sardis. He gives them a wake-up call. He gives us a wake-up call. Let me close with this. One of the most famous telegrams ever sent was on June the 2nd, 1897. Word had been received by a New York newspaper that Mark Twain had died in England. And when the news hit the newsstand and Mark Twain himself read about it, he sent this eight-word telegram to the responsible newspaper. The report of my death was an exaggeration. (laughs) Isn't it interesting that Jesus sends exactly the opposite message to the church in Sardis? The report of your life is... An exaggeration. As Jesus inspects Springville now, as He takes the pulse of your life, as He walks among the lampstands probing us today, what does He have to say to us? Let's pray. Father, once again, You... I don't know whether it's me, but it just seems like these letters get more intense (laughs) as we move forward. Once again, You've kind of knocked us right between the eyes. You've called us to wake up. Help us, Lord. To hear Your message loud and clear, not only to hear it, but to apply it. To take to heart Jesus' letter to this church in Sardis, may this letter never be pronounced over us. Help us to learn from their mistakes. And may we as a congregation be fully alive in Your Spirit. God, we don't want a reputation of being alive. We want to reality of being alive. Fan to flame that fire within us again, that passion, that zeal. Help us to be alive and alert in every way. For we pray it in Jesus' name.